0: africa
1: rise and shine
2: africa. 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 africa
3: good morning and a very warm welcome to the final hour of africa rise and shine this morning this is channel africa from an african perspective coming to you live from johannesburg in south africa we're on DSTV's Audio Bouquet Channel 802, and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Moussa and Tabisolo Hoko. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, former Transnet Board Chairperson concedes that the, the then the Transnet, Transnet Board's decision to award former CEO 17 million rand in back pay and legal costs was indefensible. South Africa's Deputy Minister for Communications calls on media industry owners to invest in their newsrooms to fight against fake news. And in economics news, some 874 new cars were sold in Namibia last month, signaling a possible return to pre-COVID-19 sales levels. But first up, the news with Anne Moussa.
4: SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective.
5: perspective. Good morning. I'm Anne Moussa. The warring parties in Libya have begun a round of negotiations in Geneva, chaired by the United Nations. The talks have brought together two delegations of military officials. One represents the UN-backed government in the capital, Tripoli, and the other has been sent by the eastern-based commander, General Khalifa Haftar. In fighting earlier this year, the government managed to end a siege of Tripoli and push the Haftar's forces out of much of western Libya. It's thought that the talks in Geneva will focus on issues like the release of detainees captured in the fighting and the dismantling of irregular armed groups. United States President Donald Trump has announced that Sudan will be removed from the U.S. State Sponsors of Terrorism list in a move that would allow Khartoum to access international loans and aid. Trump tweeted that the decision would be contingent on Sudan paying $335 million in restitution to victims of terror in the United States, showing Bryce Peace reports.
6: The United States designated Sudan a state sponsor of terror as far back as 1993, but the ouster of longtime leader Omar al-Bashir and the establishment of a reform-minded transitional government under Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdok last year has shifted the dynamic. The AU and UN had both called for the removal of Sudan from the terror list. Delisting the African country was seen as a key step for them to normalize relations with Israel, A key foreign policy objective of the Trump administration after similar moves were recently achieved with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, but it's unclear how the process might unfold given earlier opposition in Sudan to such a move.
5: Gender activists in Malawi are planning to sue the government over lack of gender balance in parastatal board appointments announced by President Lazarus Jaquera in September. The Women's Manifesto movement says despite trying to engage the government to rethink the appointments the parastatals had started working without the matter being resolved in violation of the country's constitution, they will challenge in court any decisions made by the parastatals Malawi's constitution stipulates that not more than 60% of one gender shall be represented in public service appointments. Police in Uganda have arrested 25 travellers suspected of presenting forged COVID-19 test certificates. 23 travellers were arrested on Sunday while checking in at Itembe International Airport near the capital Kampala, while two others were apprehended on arrival. The Uganda Civil Aviation Authority spokesperson Vianney Lugia says the suspects are being held by aviation police. They will face charges of forgery and uttering a false Documents. Uganda reopened its international borders on the first of this month, six months after they were closed to slow the spread of the coronavirus. And the World Health Organization has announced a special edition cover of Sister Sledge's timeless hit, We Are Family, which will be released in a new and inspiring call for global solidarity to respond to the COVID 19 pandemic. The WHO says the aim is to generate proceeds to address the most pressing. Global health challenges. The organization says it supports the initiative launched by the World. We want the Global Social Impact Enterprise and Kim Sledge. In benefit of the WHO Foundation, Sledge explains the importance of this initiative.
3: This is a solidarity effort for a global concern. We all, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people, have the banner of love over us and desire to bring us together in this world to fight the kinds of things that come against who we are and lifting our generations so. And he felt that We Are Family was the perfect song to bring the world together for this. Well, I I am so excited and I'm so honored and I am so taken in my heart. We are family. (laughs) I got Dr. children
7: with me.
5: And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African time.
1: I'm Fikile Nwati with your sports update. This hour, we begin with Olympic news. Britain has accused Russian intelligence of carrying out a series of cyber attacks on the 2020 Summer Olympics in Tokyo, with security officials warning that the postponed games due to take place next year may also be targeted. UK and Allied Intelligence Services discovered that the Russian military intelligence service, the GRU, attempted to disguise itself as Chinese and North Korean hackers in false flag operations to disrupt the Games. The attack started, according to security officials, in September last year, days before the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, threatened to ban Russian athletes from the Olympics and other major international sporting events. The GRU, which has been accused, among other things, of the Salisbury Novik poisoning and the hacking of the democratic national committee the dnc computers during the 2016 u.s election campaign also carried out cyber attacks on the 2018 winter olympics in south korea using the malware olympic destroyer council for southern african football association cosafa member countries have agreed to endorse the candidature of incumbent kev president ahmed ahmed in the upcoming elections the kev presidential elections are scheduled for the 12th of March next year in Rabat, Morocco. And COSAVA last week resolved to endorse Ahmed's candidature in a meeting by member states held virtually. COSAVA President Philip Chiangwa welcomed members present and thanked all the members' associations in the region for endorsing the candidature of President Ahmed Ahmed for a second term at the Kev General Assembly in March 2021. Chiangwa also appealed to member states to support Walter Manda, a member of the Kosafa Executive, to retain his position with the World Football's governing body, FIFA. And finally, it's been a tight encounter between the Eastern Cape Elus and the Mbomalanga Sunbirds on the evening of day three of the Telkom Netball League at the Mangawoom Sports Center in Bloemfontein, South Africa's Free State Province. It was all tied at 15 points apiece at halftime, but it was the Sunbirds who snatched victory from the jaws of defeat, winning by just one point in the dying moments of the match. The score, 31-30. to 30. In the previous afternoon match, the Limbobo Baobabs recorded their third consecutive defeat, losing to the Northern Cape Diamonds, 36-31. Earlier, the Jaguars dominated against the Golden Fireballs in the all-houting affair, securing a comprehensive 40-27 victory. That's Sport News this hour.
3: Thank you, Figula, for that sports update. It is 7.09 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. A former Transnet Board Chairperson, Mafigam Kwanazi, has conceded that the then-transport board's decision to award former Transnet CEO Siabong Agama 17 million rand in back pay and legal cost after a disciplinary process found him guilty of misconduct was indefensible. The State Capture on of inquiry heard that Transnet paid Gama the legal costs which Gama should have paid to the company following a high court ruling to that effect. Mkwanazi testified before the commission via audio link. Naleding Noble reports.
7: Transnet board chairperson Mafika Mkwanazi considered that he and his then board acted irresponsibly in their decision to reinstate then Transnet CEO Siabonga Gama in 2011. Gama had been dismissed a year earlier after an internal disciplinary hearing found him guilty of three counts of misconduct the commission heard that Gama was reinstated without any review having taken place
8: what would you say if somebody said this decision by the board is indefensible. Chairman, uh, I, I would tend to to agree with you because uh, uh, it, it's indefensible because the board did not have the, the facts of the last matter in terms of that particular offense. It, 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 it never surfaced uh, on documentation that the, this third offense uh, was almost uh, a, a
4: dispute
7: Mkwanazi denied that he was instructed by former public enterprises minister Malusi Gigaba to reinstate Gamma. He insisted that Gigaba only asked the board to review Gamma's dismissal at the time. You
8: and your board, in effect, said we want a CEO of a large division of Transnet who signs documents without reading them and thus places Transnet in a. Serious financial risk. That's the CEO we want. We want him to be reinstated. Do you agree that that's the effect of your decision and your board? Chairman, so I agree with your,
7: your yes, comments. Yes. Mkwanazi denied giving an instruction for a settlement to be paid to Gama. Transnet paid 75% of its legal fees to Gama. This despite a high court ruling instructing Gama to pay Transnet's legal fees after he lost an application to interdict his disciplinary hearing.
8: The, the assumption uh, would have been that Mr. gamma would have paid uh, certain costs uh, at that High Court uh, process. Then the idea was that if he had had to pay those, then M- Mr. Gamma needed to be refunded 75% of those costs only, but still paid the 25%? Uh, uh, yes. Yeah, well, I think we, we all understand. But that is
9: what's supposed to have happened, but it didn't help us. And Mr. Informer said it didn't
7: happen because you instructed him. I did not, yeah. The Commission is expected to hear testimony from former Public Enterprises Ministerial Advisor, Seabonga Mathangu.
3: I'm Ngobo in Johannesburg. The South African Broadcasting Corporation says according to the Labor Relations Act, it is now at liberty to unilaterally implement the contemplated retrenchments after failed talks facilitated by the Commission for Conciliation, Mediation and Arbitration, the CCMA. The public broadcaster, however, says it will afford the consulting parties one last chance to make a written submission regarding proposals to the structure or alternatives for its consideration. The SABC has been in consultation with workers' representatives over the past four months over its plans to a trench around 600 full-time employees. This is part of its restructuring aimed at making the organization financially sustainable. Ditaba
2: reports. The SABC says despite the prescripts of the Labor Relations Act Section 189 only requiring four consultation sessions in 60 days, it has in good faith completed 16 sessions in 120 days. It is therefore says it is now in a position to proceed with the retrenchments. The SABC, however says it will afford the consulting parties one last chance to make a written submission regarding proposals about the structure or alternatives it is considering. Workers Union Bemau has threatened illegal action at the Labour Court against the SABC. Should it proceed with its retrenchments without further consultation? We believe that it is utter bad faith and unsensitive of the SABC to threaten
10: employees at a time when there is huge uncertainty and coupled with the lockdown and COVID-19 threat. Should the SABC proceed with its threats to implement the 6189 process unilaterally, Bumawu will not hesitate to bring an urgent application in court to stop the SABC. The SABC has made certain undertakings and there was an agreement that was done under the auspices of the CCMA and by law they
2: are required to adhere to and honour that agreement. Dubosson says they were still in the process of questioning the proposed changes. When the SABC abandoned the talks on Friday, he further says... Previous consultation meetings were fully utilized to question the SFC's rationale behind the planned retrenchments of 600 full-time employees. The Communications Workers Union, CWU, has vowed to fight side-by-side with Bemau against the SFC's planned dismissals with a possibility of a strike action against the employer. CWU's Nathan Bowles says they will consult with their alliance partners in the ANC.
11: Let's uh, first say that we are highly disappointed that the SABC has walked out of the consultations on Friday the 16th of October and we must also state that this was a build up from the 6th of October to the 10th of October, and then finally they pulled the plug on us on the 16th of October. It was quite clear that we were denied the opportunity to get clarifications and questions and ask for further information. There's quite a number of proposals that our constitutional structures are discussing, amongst others a full-blown strike, alliance with Ma'u. We are thinking of an urgent application to test the question of the fairness, and we think that the solution has been unfair.
2: The SABC is today scheduled to appear before Parliament's Portfolio Committee on Communications Amdita Basotis in Johannesburg.
4: Across the globe, every second there's always a breaking story. We have withstood the
8: coronavirus storm. Now is the time to return our country, its people and our economy to a situation that is more normal that more resembles the lives that we were living six months ago. Following consultations with a number of stakeholders, cabinet decided that the country should now move to alert level one. The move to alert level one will take effect from midnight on Sunday, the 20th of September, 2020. This move recognizes that levels of infections are relatively low and that there is sufficient capacity in our health system to manage the current need channel africa
7: in each and every one of us there, there is, is a purpose and graves
4: we were all meant to shine it is
7: up to an individual to, to realize, realize that, that purpose. don't
4: ever let somebody tell you You can't do something. Join
7: me, Amanda Machaga, on Life by Design, where I will be talking to people who share their journey on how they discovered their purpose with the hope to inspire you to to live your life by design. design. Tune in to Life by Design for your dose of of Monday Monday motivation motivation every Monday at 8 a.m. Central African time and at 2 a.m. the following day. Life Life by by Design, be the architect architect of your life. life. Only on Channel Africa, be African perspective.
3: It's 7.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. One of the United Nations Industrial Development Organization's projects in South Africa has won the International Energy Project of the Year at the Association of Energy Engineers International Award Ceremony. The award for what is called the Industrial Energy Efficiency Project was accepted by Project Manager Alf Hatzenberg of the National Cleaner Production Centre who says it is really an acknowledgement of teamwork.
12: Incredible, because you know we had not even entered ourselves, we had not nominated ourselves, so it came as a surprise. And it's a team award. It's, it's an immense validation that what we're doing is in fact something right, and that we, the results of our work are being noticed and recognized more broadly elsewhere in the world as well as South Africa.
13: Now explain to us, um, Alf, especially for the benefit of our listeners, what this Industrial Energy Efficiency Project is all about.
12: To start with maybe just a a quick word on the timing. In 2010, when the project was launched, it was shortly after we had those immense rolling blackouts in South Africa, and a lot of the industry consumed the bulk of of electricity and other sources of energy in South Africa. And we found that at that time, industry was quite at a loss for how to overcome or how to mitigate the damage caused to the businesses by these blackouts. So at about that time, in 2010, the project was launched essentially to help industry to navigate their way around these potholes in the road so that they could soften the impact of outages, they could soften the impact of rising energy costs. And what effectively the project sought to do was to support South African industrial plants to improve their energy performance. And wow, was there a big opportunity to do that at that time. And essentially, the project not only sought to help them through its technical services of training, but also through the assessments undertaken to guide industry and teach them how they can improve the performance, whether it's using a pump system, a fan system, a steam system, a compressor system, whatever it is, is to ensure that they do it in a manner that sustains gains year on year. And that's what the project essentially does.
13: Well, it certainly sounds like a project worth winning. Talk to us about what sets this project apart from other projects that we've already seen.
12: I think what was phenomenal about the project is because of the successes of this first phase, it was extended for another five years thanks to the Global Environmental Facility. And the United Nations Industrial Development Organization was pivotal in, in catalyzing that funding and unlocking that funding and securing a second five years. And really what drove a lot of the change and what made the big impact was that we empowered South Africans where initially we started in 2010 with a lot of international experts on energy from America and Europe. By the time we started the second phase under Jeff, we were now using South African experts. And we had developed a cadre of experts, of South African experts in, in all sorts of energy systems to continue doing the work. And it was through doing that and spreading that broadly across all energy intensive sectors that we were able to embed some of the disciplines and the methodologies. And one of the first things we had to do in South Africa, we had to change the focus from a component optimization to systems optimization, because we found that globally and in South Africa at the time, there was a very narrow focus on changing a pump and a fan and a compressor without thinking about the rest of the system. So that change, it was quite a paradigm shift at that time. That now has become more commonplace in the industry and we're starting to unlock serious savings by doing it that way.
13: Now we're aware, Alpha, that 43% of the professionals that are trained through this project were female. Talk to us about how your focus um, on, on gender mainstreaming and promoting the participation of women in energy you know has made its mark.
12: The United Nations have made gender mainstream a focus of all their projects globally. When we embarked on our first project, gender mainstreaming wasn't a high or key activity element, but what we did at the end of that project was to actually develop a baseline of exactly where we are in terms of women in leadership roles in energy energy industry, women as leading uh, trainers within energy efficiency, and we set very clear-cut targets in the second phase of the project where we wanted to promote that and drive that and encourage that. And the project played a big role in pioneering women in energy. We also, in our know, technical work we do in our service with industry, we develop and we engage a company. We establish the role of women, how many of them there are in the business, how many of them are in leadership roles. And we then, over time, as we work with them and we implement the project, we go back and we check those metrics again to make sure that what we have done has, in fact, made a change because the United Nations recognizes women. That's critical in the drive against global poverty and the role women play in nurturing families and their contribution to revenue streams for the family and how through elevating the role of women, we can certainly start to fight poverty more effectively. So our training courses have been one big way in which we attracted women. We have, through promotions and concessions, seen the increase in the number of women participants in our training courses really explode. And if I were to compare South Africa... With other countries that are doing similar projects like this, we have clearly set the pace for the rest of the world in the way we have elevated and promoted the role of women in energy efficiency in South Africa.
3: That's the National Project Manager of the United Nations Industrial Development Organization's Industrial Energy Efficiency Project, Alf Hudsonberg, speaking to Zekwana COVID 19 regulations have proven expensive for schooling in South Africa. Basic Education Minister Angie Mutsecha says they've had to. Trim the curriculum because of the drastically reduced contact time. Learners have had to go on a rotation system, but this has resulted in some learners only going back to school after two weeks. The minister hopes that the lost curriculum can be recouped next year. However, she says they are looking at more effective ways to observe protocols and continue with learning, as Angela Boulon reports. The Department of Basic Education
9: is considering other ways of dealing with social distancing in classrooms. The rotation system, where learners have been going to school no more than three days a week, has proven ineffective, with some learners losing two weeks at a time in some schools. Basic Education Minister Angie says they've also had to cut some parts of the curriculum because of the reduced contact time. Moussakhat says they might copy some schools who are now using body screens to keep the same number of learners in class.
8: We're looking also at other measures, other big schools, for instance, are using body screens, not distance. Because distancing, physical distance is very expensive for us, because it means you have to cut classes into half. At a school where DG went in and they're using screens. So it's the same class where you have 35, then you have a screen, and then you just manage the movement of learners. So which means they're able to have the normal timetable. Our biggest challenge now.
9: The National Teachers Union, (NATUS) says the current rotation system in schools is compromising the quality of education. Schools introduced the rotation system where learners were meant to go to school up to three times a week. It has, however, emerged that in some schools, learners only go to school after two weeks. Natu President Alan Thompson says the system needs urgent attention.
1: Teachers are not happy with the current arrangement of seeing learners once after two weeks, of uh, teaching learners one week and they will come back after three weeks. That is definitely compromising the curriculum coverage. And it's also compromising the quality of learners that will be produced for the following grade. They definitely need to prioritize the issue of improving the infrastructure in our schools.
9: But teacher union Naptosa says the system just needs to be refined. President Pez Manuel says the rotation system is currently the only method that can keep schools safe. He says the education assistants who will start working in schools next year will also help to maintain social distancing. The rotation system
12: is working at the moment, but I think we need to refine it. And some of the choices we have where some schools have got one week on, one week off, we are now learning that that may not be the best idea. But the one day on, one day off is working. Remember, we have no choices because of uh, social distancing and COVID-19. I want to caution the schools that think they can bring everybody back, even if they don't have enough space.
3: And that report by Angela Boulwana. South Africa's Deputy Minister for Communications, Pinki Gekana, has called on media industry owners to invest in their newsrooms to fight against fake news. Kekana was giving a keynote address at a virtual commemoration of Black Wednesday, also known as Media Freedom Day. The webinar was hosted by Media Development and Diversity Agency under the theme Fake News and Disinformation, a Threat to Media Freedom. The day marks the anniversary of a brutal crackdown by apartheid government on media and the Black Consciousness Movement on the 19th of October, 1977. Nomalizo Mandela Reports.
14: Addressing the webinar as the keynote speaker, Deputy Minister of Communications Binkike Kana, said the role played by independent and pluralistic media needs to be respected and appreciated.
9: And I
15: urge media owners to invest in their newsroom and business models to fight fake news. And I challenge various institutions like academia, research houses, corporate who benefit from media coverage and the media themselves to play a role in
3: strengthening the media landscape and to look at strategies for social media engagement that disarms the spread of disinformation.
14: Another speaker at the event was the SABC's foreign editor, Sophie Mukwena. Mugwena highlighted the impact COVID-19 pandemic has had on the industry.
5: COVID-19 impact on media has created a fertile ground for fake news to flourish. Because we see media houses closing down, uh, retrenching people. And therefore, it will be very difficult at this time for media houses to be able to verify or to do the work that they are supposed to do with their current capacity in different newsrooms. Therefore, I think it's up to the nation the continent and the world to ensure that they continue to support the traditional media because without traditional media, we will be victims of fake news.
14: Another member of the panel was the current press ombudsman, Pepper Green. Green disagreed with the idea of criminalizing misinformation as she believes this will lead to other problems like censorship. She said the focus should rather be in strengthening the profession.
15: And the way to counter fake information is really to strengthen journalism. And if our platform has to be technological, has to be a platform on the Internet, then we've got to learn better ways of how to, how to use that rather than our traditional platforms. And we've got to enhance our credibility to do that. So I think that so we can tell the stories that matter on you know, climate change, on COVID-19, on science and corruption, much better than social media can, because we can tell them with accuracy and with empathy. Anyone who's been on Twitter for five minutes will notice the lack of empathy. So I think that that's the legacy that we need to carry on from the 1977 generation.
14: Media Monitoring Director William Byrd, who was also a panelist, said politicians need to also play their role and stop undermining the media.
12: So we need to work together as civil society, as media and as government and the social platforms, social media platforms to develop more effective ways of trying to combat disinformation. Because let's be clear, if we allow this to continue and when we don't openly criticise politicians that undermine media credibility, the thing that makes them even more short-sighted than they ordinarily are is that, of course, what they're doing is, is undermining the very position that they that, that, that gave them their status to begin with.
3: That report by Nomalizo Mandela. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
4: SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African, From an African perspective.
5: perspective. Good morning, I'm Anne Moussan. The headlines, the warring parties in Libya have begun a round of negotiations in Geneva, chaired by the United Nations. United States President Donald Trump has announced that Sudan will be removed from the U.S. state sponsors of terrorism list in a move that would allow Khartoum to access international loans and aid. And police in Uganda have arrested 25 travellers suspected of presenting forged COVID-19 test certificates. Those are the stories making headlines.
4: SABC News,
16: independent and impartial. From an African
4: perspective.
3: standard of mental health for everyone. Ian Byrne, Amnesty International's advisor on economic and social cultural rights, elaborates.
16: Well, I think we all know uh, during this time of of COVID, uh, the huge mental health toll that it's taken uh, on people around the world. And I'm sure that's also the case in in South Africa. Um, We're seeing much higher levels of depression and anxiety, and that's understandable during a pandemic with all of its different impacts. But I think when you look at particular groups that are already quite vulnerable and marginalized, such as people on the move, and that can include refugees, uh, undocumented migrants, uh, etc., there are particular trauma that they've already often suffered. They're fleeing conflict. uh, They're fleeing poverty, they're often abused uh, by uh, non-state actors. They're often their rights are violated sadly by governments. And so they've already got already uh, threats of, uh, of mental health um, issues and then this is being multiplied during the pandemic uh, where often we are seeing uh, people being um, quarantined for long periods in camps. Often they don't get access to basic social goods and services. Such as water and sanitation, so it's not surprising that we're seeing quite high levels of mental health suffering.
13: Now, let's talk about um, why this this neglect uh, persists, Ian. Um, uh, let's and, and, and talk a little bit about uh, some of the of the issues that uh, um, these groups find themselves uh, grappling with.
16: Well, I think uh, historically, when you look at the figures, um, uh, uh, very small proportions of government budgets and international aid is actually spent on mental health uh, per se. I mean, I think if you look at low-income countries in Africa, you're literally talking a few cents per person per year. And so, therefore, if you kind of extrapolate that out and look at also what's available to particular marginalised groups, groups that are often under the radar, uh, that you will see them completely uh, not being serviced where, when, in fact, they've got high levels of need. So what we are calling for is, A, for uh, refugees and migrants to be much more integrated into mental health services, uh, to be involved in participating in decision-making, uh, for budgets to be expanded, and also for international aid uh, budgets uh, to, to also similarly focus much more on mental health. Again, I think it's about 1% Of aid budgets actually go towards mental health services, which is uh, a very small percentage.
13: Now, um, it it seems governments just don't recognise their obligation here in terms of ensuring that even those who are seeking refuge should have access to to mental health services. Uh, Why do you think it's the case that, I mean, there's no real priority that's placed on, on issues surrounding mental health?
16: well i think i think you're right look we all realize that that the governments are struggling particularly at this time uh with uh health issues related to the pandemic with other socio economic issues that have been as a result of lockdown Mm -hmm. uh etc so we we recognize that but i think what we are calling for always is to comply with your international human rights law obligations and let's forget and let's just remember Uh, these are binding legal treaties that governments have signed up to, um, such as South Africa. Obviously, South Africa also has a a very progressive constitution. Uh, So if you've got these obligations, then you should take them seriously, much as we would do if we sign a contract uh, with each other. And then um, one of the first things is to have a plan, as you say, is to have a strategy and, and to set yourself some targets. And even if you're not achieving those targets straight away, at least you have some sort of strategic vision within which to do it. So it's obviously identifying the problem, uh, doing some analysis, setting up some indicators and benchmarks and putting some budget against that. And I think when you look at the overall completely disproportionate neglect of mental health services, and and then particularly for refugees and migrants, uh, you've got to see that states could be doing more.
13: But some would argue um, that mental health is, is, is generally not prioritized, you know, by governments, even for its, its own citizens, if you like. Um, but of course, uh, what we've seen with this uh, global pandemic is that um, it's something that simply cannot be, um, uh, you know, um, simply just brushed off or, or not dealt with or ignored. Um, let's talk a little bit about that and what this pandemic has done in terms of uh, putting a greater focus around mental health.
16: Well, I think what we're seeing at Amnesty International uh, is lots of issues that have sometimes been neglected. And sadly, it takes an international global crisis such mm. as COVID to, to, to amplify that, isn't it? Um, and so one of those things is definitely mental health. I mean, I think mental health has always been the poor relation, the poor sister of physical health, even though both sure. aspects, as you said, as you said right at the beginning, are there in the international treaty. International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, that South Africa is ratified in other countries. And it's a, almost an invisible thing sometimes, isn't it? I mean, traditionally, there's a mm-hmm. lot of stigma. There's a lot of stigma and discrimination around mental health. People feel awkward talking about it. It's not a physical thing that you can see. People having to take time off work, they're often reluctant. There's a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings around mental health, even some of the terminology. So when you've got all of that context, it's not surprising that it has been neglected. But I think what you are seeing, as I said earlier, you know, higher levels of depression and anxiety around COVID uh, because of all its various aspects. Um, maybe this is an opportunity to reset the clock, to think more about mental health. We issued this public statement around Mental Health Day, which was about a week ago, to really take advantage of that global day and say, well, don't forget certain groups that are really struggling during this time in addition to the wider population
3: that was Ian Byrne Amnesty International's advisor on economic and social cultural rights speaking to Zikonomiso
4: Across the globe every second there's always a breaking story
14: Kulchanjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's
1: capital Addis Ababa
14: Reporting for Channel Africa I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia
4: Our cutting edge and hard hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned giving you the whole picture every time
1: George Muhango Channel Africa Blantyre.
4: Reporting
8: for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi.
1: From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world
4: about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa.
11: WHO recommends 30 minutes of physical activity a day for adults and one hour a day for children. If your local or national guidelines allow it, go outside for a walk, a run, or a ride, and keep a safe distance from others. If you can't leave the house, find an exercise video online, dance to music, do some yoga, or walk up and down the stairs
6: avoid touching your eyes nose and mouth to slow the spread of the coronavirus for more information on the coronavirus visit the world health organization site at www.who.int
3: It's 7.41 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Cameroon says it has again closed more than 60 schools on its northern border with Nigeria to save children and teaching staff from increasing Boko Haram attacks. The Central African state has deployed its military to teach displaced children in locations they say are safe. Moki reports from Yaoundé that Boko Haram is increasingly using suicide bombers as the military has drastically reduced the terrorist group's firepower.
8: Usmanu Garga, the Cameroon basic education official on the northern border with Nigeria, says recent Boko Haram attacks have made many schools unsafe.
4: Sixty-two schools have been closed. The children have to either to be schoolized in older schools very far from their own villages or to abandon schools. Thirty-four thousand and fifty-four. Students have been registered as IDPs. We have the students of the host communities. We have even refugee students in the Minawaukang. We had at the creation 300 person but at the end of this academic year, there are more than 67,000. Among them, 58,000 as students, but only 41 percent are in various schools either in the secondary or primary schools schools have been burned scattered down so they have been affected they have been traumatized and this explains why the teachers need special skills like psychosocial support to handle this kind of children with specific needs this 2020 we have military Teachers in Nguma.
8: Garga says several dozen schools in Cameroon's Mayo Sava, Mayo Chanaga, and Logon and Shari administrative units that border Nigeria's Bono State, the epicenter of Boko Haram, no longer function.
4: The international community have developed the concept of safe schools. It means that schools and universities should not be attacked whether there is peace or war. To open the schools, we need the village or the locality to be secure. The population, the chiefdom, they have to be there. At that end, we can have school to be open their doors.
8: Garga said teachers in all the affected schools fled with the children they teach. Cameroon's military has been reporting at least three Boko Haram attacks every week since January. The military says most of the attackers are suicide bombers, mainly women and children. The military says the terrorist group has torched 13 schools within the past two months, held at least 200 people for ransom, and abducted an unknown number of civilians. Colonel Jikum Aze, commander of Cameroonian troops fighting Boko Haram in the Sava. Mayochanaga and Logan and Shari administrative units says the military has been deployed to protect civilians in the area. Aze says some troops have also been deployed to teach displaced students in safer areas less susceptible to Boko Haram attacks.
4: Ashigasha has for long been a target for Boko Haram assaults as early as 2014. The hierarchy thinks that to sustain a good security situation, it is through the youths, and the best process is their education. Non-governmental organizations,
8: rights and humanitarian groups have been calling on Boko Haram to respect the Intergovernmental Safe School Declaration. Desiree Fuda of the NGO School First says the declaration should be observed to protect students and ensure they are able to obtain an education.
0: We sensitize different actors in education to respect those guidelines on safe school declaration and advocacy so that all the different actors should contribute to help those children to have access to education. So if the situation is okay, those schools can be reopened. Or to see where those students have been moved to another community so that they can have access to education. Even if they are still in that community and they cannot access to their school due to insecurity, they can develop different alternative education opportunities. Our contribution will be to give them training how they can advocate to military authorities or administrative authority that they can analyze the situation of the reopening of different schools.
8: Boko Haram terrorists have been fighting for 11 years to create an Islamic caliphate in North East Nigeria. The fighting has spread to Cameroon, Chad, Niger and Benin, with regular killings, abductions, and burnings of mosques, churches, markets, and schools. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaounde,
3: Cameroon. South Africa's press ombudsman Pippa Green says journalism can be used to hold those in power to account. She was delivering the virtual 10th annual Percy Koboza Memorial Lecture. The theme for this year's lecture was Why Journalism Matters. The challenges have changed but has its core purpose. Maluti Obuseng reports.
10: Forty-three years ago, in what remains known as Black Wednesday, the apartheid government banned several newspapers, including the World and Black Consciousness organisations. It also detained editor Percy Coevasa and several others without trial for months. Green says, despite challenges that media faces, journalism can still play a pivotal role.
15: We face other severe threats to the fabric of our democracy. Corruption is one. It deliberately siphons money and resources paid for by taxpayers and intended to benefit the poor in our deeply unequal society and redistributes it to a politically connected elite class. The work of the Daily Maverick convened team that included News24 and the investigative news agency Amabungani, exposing the extent of state capture through what is now known as the Gupta leaks, is one example of how journalism can hold those in power to account.
10: Greenfeather says journalists must always strive for the truth, independent verification, and should be loyal to the citizens. She adds that journalism should serve as the reference for verification of the information peddled in social media
15: journalism's first obligation is to the truth its first loyalty is to citizens, its essence is a discipline of verification, its practitioners must maintain an independence from those they cover, and it must serve as an independent monitor of power. The problem with social media is that obligation to the truth and the discipline of verification frequently comes second to clickbait, rumor, and outright propaganda. In South Africa, we experienced a deliberate social media campaign as a pushback to the exposes on the Guptas and state capture.
10: Among the panelists was the Sunday Times deputy editor Mike Siluma. Siluma describes Pesiko as an activist journalist.
15: To my
1: mind, he is important to South African journalism because at the world, he was not inventing the will. He was, in fact, feathering a long-standing tradition of activist journalism. He stood on the shoulders of historical icons, such as uh, JT Jabavu, who founded the uh, Invo Zabansundu newspaper, and who was also a political
10: activist. Digital broadcaster Rems Mabote says the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic has changed the media.
1: COVID-19, sad as it is on human life, livelihoods, business, has woken up the media to accepting that we are in a new era. Everyone today with a smartphone is a reporter, like it or not. They carry with them a tool that not only captures images still or moving, but can also run commentary and views. The purists hate this. I have bad news for you. Love it or hate it, that's our reality. That's reporting. Accurate? Hardly ever.
8: Credible? Almost never. Factual? Sometimes yes, often no.
3: That report by Moluti Obuseng. It is 750 Central African time and our economics updates up next with Tabisolo Hoku.
6: Thanks Sabalungile and good morning. The Communication Workers' Union of South Africa has lambasted the SABC for its decision to persist with the possible retrenchment of as many as 600 full-time employees. The CWU says it is considering a strike with the fellow union Bemau over the matter. The public broadcaster says it is now at liberty to unilaterally implement a contemplated retrenchments after failed talks facilitated by the Commission for Conciliation, Mediation and Arbitration, the CCMA. However, the CWU says among its concerns is that the SABC has not shared detailed information of its new structure so that the union can properly commend the cw user nathan bowers says the fairness of the sabc's decision is questionable
11: the ccma ourselves and the employer agree that we will have subcommittee meetings ours is to understand the information we had an agreement that we are going to engage now the sabc themselves are playing for time here because at the end of the day we need to go back to our members With the full information on the proposed or rationale, new structure, it was always the SABC's intent to tick the boxes. We will be be engaging amongst ourselves in terms of getting secondary strikes to support the SABC workers.
6: The Eswatini Rail Link continues unabated to advance economic development and intra-African trade. The project, which has been described by Engineering News as a joint inter-railway strategic initiative between Transnet Free Rail and Eswatini Railways, seeks to create a dedicated general freight business corridor for Transnet, while providing much-needed additional capacity for ESR. The project entails the construction of a 150-kilometer-long new railway link between Air in South Africa and Sidvokodvo in Eswatini, including the upgrading of existing lines, one being the line from Emelo to Lothair in Bumalanga Province, and the other being the line from Sidvokodvo to the logistics hub of Riches Bay in South Africa. The latest World Bank's Poverty and Inequality report shows that one of the greatest challenges of the 21st century is the need to reduce poverty levels and economic inequality globally. Economic growth is the most powerful tool for reducing poverty and improving the quality of life in developing countries. The report finds that more equal countries tend to have healthier people, a more economically efficient and have greater social stability than highly unequal countries. Some 874 new cars were sold in Namibia last month signalling a possible return to pre-COVID-19 sales levels. These sales were mainly in the light commercial vehicles and passenger vehicles which saw 537 and 278 units sold respectively. When compared to last year's figures, an 8.4% uptick was recorded, and a 46.9% when compared to August this year, which you saw 595 vehicles sold. The Canadian town of Asbestos has voted to change its name in a bid to shed its negative image and attract more economic investment. The town's new name will be. Val des or Valley of the Sources in English, the BBC's Warren Bull reports. The town of
2: Asbestos was once the location of the world's largest mine of the substance, which was long used in construction before it was discovered as a cause of cancer. After the mine closed eight years ago, the municipal council intensified its efforts to diversify. It found that the town's name was putting off outside investment, especially from English-speaking communities. So in November, the council decided to call a referendum, offering six alternative choices. On Monday night, the council revealed the outcome, chosen by residents aged 14 and upwards. Henceforth, asbestos will be known as Val
6: de Sauce. The US dollar is trading at a 382.39, Nigerian Nara 11.35, Botswana Pula 107.82, Kenyan shilling, and 2015 Zambian guacha. In BRICS currencies, we'll start in Brazil. One US dollar is trading at 5 rubles 60, in Russia 77 rubles 75, India 73 rupees 25, China 60 yuan 68, and in South Africa a dollar costs 16 rand 49. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and 85 cents to euro. Looking at commodities markets now, gold is trading at $1,902 and platinum at $8.57 per ounce, while brand crude oil is at $42.29 a barrel. It's Channel Africa.
1: Africa, rise and shine.
4: Africa, source Africa. Africa, amuka na unai.
3: It wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Kabu, producer Luanda Maume, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or WhatsApp on plus two seven seven six three double zero double three two seven or tweet us at Channel Africa One. I'll take us to the top of the hour for the news is Nyanyama by Salif Keta. Keep safe and goodbye for today.
17: Ayama, Uma, can I am a Demana ke wole fe Yala nyala nafo Ma fo Ma la fo la bou pa la fo mani kade Demana ke wole fe Yala nyala nafo Ma fo Ma la fo la bou pa la fo mani kade Grinandido jarofo fidela ke Misi gana wole fe Yala nyala nafo Na fo Uma,